every one of us is surrounded by a network of relationships. And that network of relationships has a culture. And that culture, most of the time, is losing energy. It's aligned with the past. In some form or fashion, it's dying. The role of a leader is to breathe life into that culture. And we have many, many managers, executives. We call them leaders because they have a position. But they don't know how to lead. They only know how to manage. When this is over and we go back to school, go back to work, every incentive will be in place to go back to what we did before the crisis occurred. And in most places, that's exactly what will happen. I call this the question that changes everything. And most human beings are never able to ask this question. And the question is this, if crisis creates social excellence without leadership, can leadership create social excellence without crisis? As we begin to pivot our organizations from the necessary critical decisions to get through these first few months to living with a new way of working, how do we not fall back into business as usual? Our people are looking not only for direction and stability, but a sense of connection to a larger purpose. At the heart of people feeling disconnected is the absence of a certain kind of leadership that puts one's ego aside and empowers others to genuinely connect with a deeper purpose. Today on the show, Howard has a conversation with Dr. Robert Quinn, Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and co-founder for the Center for Positive Organizations. Howard and Robert explore what it looks like to step up into an authentic way of leading, both from the heart and with conviction. Before we get started, We want to make sure our conversations and topics are interesting and relevant to all our listeners. If you have topics or are interested in being a guest on Navigating Change, please email us at info at tybelinc.com. That's info at T-E-I-B-E-L-I-N-C dot com. And now, Howard Tybel and Robert Quinn. Great to see you, Robert, and having you on the show this week. How are you doing? Very well, and I'm delighted to be with you, Howard. Just even this morning, I'm looking at the Daily Feed and the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Uh, San Jose State, mostly going online. Clemson, freezing tuition. Leaderships, uh, looking at 10 to 20% pay cuts. And these constant and evolving scenarios that are now sort of following each other. And what I find really fascinating is how education institutions move as a herd. In the end, there are going to be institutions that are going to come forward and go, this is what we're going to do. And others are going to go, you know what? That is a powerful move. There's such a expectation that everybody needs to lead. I think about it in a variety of ways. In the example you just gave, that's kind of a strategic institutional perspective. We look at some people, like I just saw a feed about New Zealand, 
and they're just holding up the prime minister on the highest pedestal, saying that she's come forward as one of the world's primary leaders because of the way she's led the institution called New Zealand. Some people come out smelling good and some people don't. You know, there is an institutional outcome. If someone does have a breakthrough, you know, you can be the second follower and often do very, very well. I think there's another perspective that's even more basic. And that is every one of us is surrounded by a network of relationships. And that network of relationships has a culture. And that culture, most of the time, is losing energy. It's aligned with the past. In some form or fashion, it's dying. The role of a leader is to breathe life into that culture. And we have many, many managers, executives. We call them leaders because they have a position. (laughs) But they don't know how to lead. They only know how to manage. And they're problem solvers. You know, I think sometimes we hear that as a, uh, a lesser than, right? They're just, they're just managers. When in fact, without that, we won't get anything done. We absolutely need good managers. <laughs> we need great managers. But it's interesting because, you know, I'm curious, as I think about working with teams, I think people have to step in and out of a leadership way of being and a manager way of being, depending on the nature of the circumstance that they're in, right? It's not that you're just a leader. Sometimes you have to manage others. So you have to sort of live in both domains. Yeah, there's absolutely no question about that. That, um, you know, what happens is from the time we start a professional school, no matter what profession it is, we get enveloped in a certain set of assumptions and they're about authority and hierarchy, self-interest and so on. And they lead to very predictable behaviors. We're expected to solve problems. And if we don't, we're in trouble. Leadership is about transcending that. It's you're not only using rational logic and solving problems, you're finding purpose and you're inspiring learning. And a leader is a manager because the demand to solve task problems never goes away, but is much more than that. And people are not trained in their professional schools to be bilingual. They live in that first model. You know, I heard this quote once, and it's that leaders lead people, managers manage tasks. Leaders don't have subordinates. Leaders have, and I'd stop and be in front of a room, I said, leaders have, and everybody knows the answer to this, leaders have what? Followers. And I think that distinction is a really nice way of distinguishing between when you show up as a leader, you're actually leading others, while when you're doing a manager task, you're actually managing the activity of tasks. And managers uh, don't need followers because that's the domain of, of what you talked about before, authority, Right? I can tell you what to do because I'm your boss, but that doesn't make you a leader. I just read a tweet from the Surgeon-in-Chief New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University. They posted this. Craig Smith, 700 years ago on Good Friday, not in 1300, Dante began his allegorical journey through the underworld, 
over portal to which were the words, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. I'm not introducing this famous poem to apply that we're at this point. We are quite a bit further along. Today, I only mention that the first group of sufferers Dante and Virgil meet are people incapable of conviction, who are only interested in themselves, and who spend eternity chasing a meaningless banter around the anteroom to hell. They aren't even worthy of limbo. Those are not the people who have joined us in this fight against this ugly and indifferent virus. He's been doing this every day. Wow. This represents what I think you were just talking about, is how you get people oriented, and especially around your recent work, uh, which will absolutely make available to folks, is you know, having a purpose-driven life and a you know, purpose-driven organization. What, what strikes you about hearing that quote, if you were, it, as, as an observer, but also if you worked in that organization? So here's a man caught up in one of the most intense crises we've ever seen. And he's in the very bowels of it. And yet he takes time every day to think about the big picture. And then with great feeling, he's communicating a message to his people that's a sense-making message. Here's where we stand. We are not these people. That is like water in the desert for his, quote, followers, right? He's he's exerting enormous influence that people are hungry to have. I'm going to read something that you wrote to me just yesterday. I was, we were bantering back and forth about the nature of that people are going through anticipatory grief. And you wrote, this is the biggest event since World War II. For the next 40 years, we'll make sense of this in assessments, science, literature, politics, and the movies. Education will be deeply altered. The anxiety and uncertainty is appropriate, and we are moving through the process of deep change. It seems to me when you wrote this book or you think about these concepts in good times, it's a certain call to action, but there's nothing compelling. It's like, World War II mobilized us. This pandemic is mobilizing us, and we have a common enemy universally around the world. When you look at all of your work over the years about inspiring people, about how they can personally change, you know, in the absence of a crisis, what do you see as different now? Uh, because right now, I, I see I'm not concerned about what they're going to do in the response, everyone's mobilizing beautifully to the best of their ability. To me, what the issue is going to be is what's going to happen after this. And are we going to fall back into, uh, let's get back to normal. I mean, do you see that this could be the trigger of people behaving differently and working differently versus going back to a certain kind of comfort zone when all this begins to die down? I think that's a profoundly important question. When we wrote the book on higher purpose that came out a few months ago, we interviewed uh, leaders of large organizations. And it was interesting how many of those interviews traced back to the year 2008. Now, 2008 
was the Great Economic Recession. And so many of them experienced crisis at that time. And they felt all the things we're feeling right now. Most managers, most executives, most CEOs responded with conventional thought because that's what we're programmed to do. And they had conventional experiences. But there were a handful of people who experienced what happens in crisis and they learned and they transformed. Let me explain what that means. I'll I'll give you one example. Jerry Anderson was the CEO of DTE Energy in Detroit. The, the recession hit. They went into crisis. Uh, overnight, there were millions of dollars behind. And his people started analyzing it. They came to him and said, look, we're a high fixed course company. We're a utility. Um, we've got to downsize. And he said, we just went through this company and told people they were people, not widgets. If we downsize, we're going to lose them forever. And they said, okay, smart guy, what do you want to do? And his honest response was, I don't know. (laughs) He knew what he didn't want to do, and there was tremendous pressure to do it, and he didn't have an answer. He went into a meeting shortly after with hundreds of the top people in the company and took the biggest risk of his life. And he stood in front of them and he said, here's a transparent account of where we are. Here's all the numbers. Here's what we're looking at. Everybody who's analyzed it says we have only one choice. That's the downsize. That's the last thing I want to do. But I truly don't have an answer. I don't know what to do. I'm the CEO and I don't know what to do. You're never allowed to say that. But I'm standing here telling you I don't know what to do. But I have another belief. I believe that you know what to do. I believe that everybody in this room has an answer to this problem, and I'm not even smart enough to ask the right question to surface it. Only you know what that is. Well, he went back to his office and said to himself, what in the world did I just do? (laughs) The finance guy came in the end of the month. He said, okay, how are we doing? He said, oh, we're ahead of plan. He said, that's impossible. Your model's broken. Get it fixed. The guy said, no, my model's right. We're ahead of plan. Next month, had a plan. Next month, had a plan. It went on and on. August came. He knew it was going to be a disastrous report. He said, okay, where are we? And the finance guy said, we're ahead of plan. And Jerry slammed the table and said, your model is broken. You get it fixed. And the guy slammed the table and said, my model's not broken. This is exactly what's happening. And Jerry said, At that moment, my life changed forever. The next 12 months were the most educational months of my life. Now, what happened? He gives lots of examples. There was a large $30 million project going out to bid to redo their computers. And they said, well, we're going to tighten this up just before the meeting. They got it down to 27. They saved $3 million. That was really good. After the meeting, those very same people went back, tore that whole thing apart, figured out that the only thing that needed to be changed was the motherboards. They went to the manufacturers, said, here's the situation. We need you 
to extend yourself and make just our motherboards. $3 million. They just saved $27 million. And Jerry says, that didn't happen at one time. That was happening all over the company simultaneously. And I didn't even know what all those events were. Our company was transforming because that was an emergent process where everyone was pulling together. They were collaborating at a very high level and doing things that no one would have ever normally done. In 2009, when GM was going bankrupt, Detroit was slipping into the Great Lakes, and the whole country was falling apart, DTE Energy had their best year in history. Now, that's impossible. In 2010, Jerry started the year by saying to his people, his direct reports, we just witnessed a miracle, and you all lived through it. In crisis, we saw our people perform at a level that was impossible. So now I have a new question for you. Now, I call this the question that changes everything. And most human beings are never able to ask this question. And the question is this. If crisis creates social excellence without leadership, can leadership create social excellence without crisis? Now, from 2013 to present, they have performed at 300% above industry average. They've been named the best place to work. They're a spectacular organization because they moved from management to leadership. Now, we're talking about the CEO. We're talking about the top team. They were living by normal assumptions, and then they shifted. Now, the point is, crisis teaches us things if we have eyes to see it, because in crisis, people will collaborate and do magical things. Now, when we flip back, when this is over, and we go back to school, go back to work, Every incentive will be in place to go back to what we did before the crisis occurred. And in most places, that's exactly what will happen because of people thinking conventionally. What provokes me in that story is this question of what, what does a person have to give up to lead that way? I can give you a one-word answer. It's three letters long, and it begins with an E, E-G-O. Say more about what it means to give up ego. Here's another story from the same set of interviews. This man was the CEO of the fourth largest food company in the, on the globe. In the first year, he almost lost his job. And the reason he lost, almost lost his job is... He was giving directives and nothing's happening. Now, when you're the CEO, you're king. You get to tell people what to do. In fact, that's not the way the world works. When you ask people to do hard things, they don't. <laughs> and they find ways to resist you. One day, two of his people said to him, if there's a vision here, we don't know what it is. Now, he was furious at those people because they were suggesting he was the problem. The next day, he was sitting with a financial analyst from Wall Street, and the financial analyst said, if there's a vision in this company, I can't find it. 
Now, that was devastating. And he went through several months of crisis, personal crisis. And he came to the same state that Jerry Anderson came to. He discovered a whole new world. He said to me, when I reflect back on my first disastrous year, I can reduce all my problems to one word. The word is expert. I needed to be the expert. Now, why does a person in any management position have to be the expert? Because the entire world around you expects you to have the answers. You are supposed to be the expert. You are supposed to have authority. You're accountable for this organization. And so virtually everything works to put us into conventional thinking, ego-centered, self-interested thinking. And that's fear-based thinking. And it's, as you said, reactive thinking. We're in a reactive phase. Moving to a proactive, inventive, creative phase is a big jump. And it starts by you overcoming your own ego. You're committed to the common good of the institution. This was just part one of Howard's conversation with Robert Quinn. Part two is coming soon. Howard and Robert will explore what it takes to move away from self-interest and fear-based thinking to a place where you can lead the organization with an authentic higher purpose. You won't want to miss this thoughtful follow-up conversation, so make sure you've subscribed to our mailing list at tybelinc.com, that's T-E-I-B-E-L-I-N-C.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss this important notification. On behalf of Howard and Robert, thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybel Education.